You're listening to the Government Huddle Podcast, brought to you by GMarkU. Each episode features a unique discussion led by public sector executive and global government thought leader, Brian Chittister. Experts in all things government from around the world join the show to share their stories and provide insight into the rapidly changing landscape that is the public sector. From digital transformation to workforce issues and even thoughts on policy, nothing is off limits. Come on, let's huddle up. These data just really start to help you apply your effort in a way that is going to help you, you know, be a more resilient human, really, both physiologically and psychologically. And, and, and so these are some of the ways that data can be used at an aggregate level to just direct, to help, to educate, right? So we know, you know, with our, you know, military outfit in Alaska, we are educating around sleep consistency. We know that there is a direct relationship between sleep consistency and, um, and, and, and subjective feelings of resilience. We also saw it correlate to less homesick. Um, they, these individuals feel more in control of their life. So there, there's, you know, this incredible opportunity to look at these um, data at an aggregate level and, and really then understand how to educate your, your workforce. Welcome back to the Government Huddle Podcast, guys. I'm your host, Brian Chittister, and we have a fun episode today. I'm sitting down with Kristen Holmes, the Vice President of Performance Science at Whoop, which is fun to say. Many of you probably already have heard of them and might even be a user, but if you don't know about the company, it was founded in 2012, and they're on a mission to unlock human performance. Whoop believes that every individual has an inner potential that can be enhanced through data and continuous monitoring. As such, they've built a system across hardware, software, and analytics designed to collect and analyze the most important data on the human body. Whoop is fortunate to monitor professional athletes, fitness enthusiasts, Fortune 500 CEOs, executive doctors, and the military. And I think Kristen is the perfect guest to help us understand not only the importance of data, but also how to effectively implement a data-driven culture. As we've seen, governments at every level around the world have been adopting digital solutions years ahead of schedule. And maintaining this momentum isn't going to be easy. But for those agencies that want to keep pace with this change going forward, engaging with data and analytics is vital. Data is key to transforming our world. It can help to enhance citizen experience, find solutions to global problems, and make better business decisions. However, this reality requires a fundamental shift in our mindset. Not all governments are at the point where they can make the most of data. And to do this, they need to better comprehend what data is, understand its role in the economy of the future, and recognize its potential to affect positive change. So that is what we're here to do today. Kristen, welcome to the show. Thanks for joining me. Uh, thanks for having me, Brian. Excited to be here. So one of the things I really pride myself in is trying to find inspiration from areas outside of not only my comfort zone, but my industry as a whole. And more recently, governments around the world have really tried to be intentional about enveloping best practices from private sector, but mostly within their own swim lanes, right? But what I think is, uh, is really cool about Whoop is the way that you're not only leveraging data but you found unique ways to successfully actionize that data, which I think government can really learn from. And you're the person who's really been running the group charged with doing just that, right? 
Exactly. Yeah. We're, we're really trying to, you know, at our core, try to provide folks insight about their body. Um, and, and not only just what, what is the insight, what are, what are those insights telling me, but actually what are the behaviors that I need to grasp onto in order to, um, you know, to, to really optimize, uh, uh, you know, human thriving. Uh, that's really at our, at our core, what we're, what we're doing is we're collecting huge amounts of biometric data 24 seven, um, and then transforming those data uh, for our members to help them understand, uh, you know, how to think about strain, sleep and recovery uh, in, in a more intentional way throughout the day. So they can um, really, you know, live the, you know, be the best versions of, of themselves. That's fascinating. So, I mean, we're going to dive deeper into this uh, later on, but before we do that, I wanted to talk to you about your background a little bit. Tell me about your time at University of Iowa. You you played field hockey there. You multiple All-American, Hall of Famer. Um, but what I'd really love to know is how did all of that really craft your passion for performance? Yeah, I, you know, I, th I think my my interest in you know better understanding, oh, you know, I think as a competitive athlete and, and Brian, you know, this as a, as a, you know, elite athlete yourself, you're always trying to figure out, okay, how do I, how do I do my craft at the highest level possible? So I, I, you know, at a pretty early age, I started kind of unpacking, you know, or being more intentional, I suppose, about my behaviors to really understand, okay, what's actually contributing positively to my performance levels and what is not contributing positively. And, you know, I read a whole bunch of books, you know, Dr. Jim Lahr, um, his last name, L-O-E-H-R, was a, a early influence of mine. He's a performance, kind of the earliest performance psychologist, I suppose. And um, I read one of his books and that was really, you know, transformational for me in a lot of ways in that it, it helped me start to understand that, wow, okay, there's a physiological component to performance. There's a psychological component to performance and it might be bi-directional and that they really do influence each other. And so I started paying attention, you know, to, to the factors that influence my performance and that kind of carried into, you know, college. And, um, you know, so I was just really always super dialed into, all right, how am I living and how is that helping or hurting my performance levels? So, uh, yeah, and that, and that kind of carried through, you know, my, my academic career and, and, you know, my master's in exercise physiology and psychology and then my PhD work you know, is really um, focused on, you know, these psychophysiological determinants of human flourishing and, and the frameworks and policies to support it. So my whole entire, really whole entire career has been uh, really focused on on behaviors and, and what works and what doesn't. One of the things that when I had Austin Collie on the show, former college, but also NFL uh, athlete, one of the things that he said that really resonated with me was every day he was trying to just get 1% better. And yeah. he would take a look at everything he was doing down to whether it was sleep, what he was eating, um, to obviously physical activities, mental studying, all of that. Yeah. But he wanted to improve every single day. And if you're improving by 1% every day, you're not stagnating. Uh, is that kind of the mindset you you adopted at a young age and you're bringing to these things? Yeah, I, I definitely had, uh, you know, notebooks filled with just all, all of my activities. <laughs> Um, but yeah, I mean, I think when you're, you know, really obsessed with, you know, being a, as good at your craft as, as you can be, you start to uh, really audit, you know, your activities. And, and that's, you know, what I learned at a, at a young age. And I think the other thing that 
is interesting with data, uh, you know, and, and what I brought into my career when I began coaching is that <clears throat> I started to see that, you know, it works for me or it works, works for one athlete may not work for another athlete. You know, it's kind of this like big N of one experiment. <laughs> um, and, and I think that's what actually got me started, you know, started down the path of incorporating more data into my coaching environment. Um, you know, was that I, I kind of saw that, oh, wow, you know, not everyone is responding and adapting equally to, you know, volume and intensity, for for example. Um, and, you know, not everyone needs the same amount of sleep. Uh, not everyone is responding to, you know, the same to, you know, nutrition, um, hydration levels are different. You know, these are things that are very individual. So, you know, I, I definitely think that, you know, auditing, you know, these things that we know uh, from a scientific perspective are, are actually influencing our ability to adapt in a, in a functional or non-functional way to the world are worth tracking, you know, and, and I think that's where, you know, obviously science and technology has involved, evolved in a way to really uh, take a lot of the guesswork out of it. And and I think that's what I was trying to do at an early stage, you know, as a sophomore in high school, like, I want, I don't want to have to guess, you know, like, I really want to understand. And, and that's kind of when the journey, I suppose, began and, you know, carried through college and, um, and as you know, brought me to this point today is that I, I've, my whole entire career has been trying to literally codify the science of performance. And, and, and so, so we don't have to guess. And I, and I think I have a pretty solid framework and on how to think about that. Just based on I'm the glad. research, apply it and, you know, non. I'm glad you brought up your, your coaching because to me, that's just as interesting because you had a lot of success playing, but also a lot of success coaching. And what I'm really curious to know, because I know there's a lot of leaders out there that struggle to implement a culture around data and performance. How did you go about doing that? during your time at Princeton? And do you think that was one of the reasons that really drove that success? Yeah. I mean, I think, I think we're leaders. I, you know, that I always kind of, um, not to, I, I definitely have a point of view on, on, on leadership and, and how to think about, you know, uh, helping people maximize their potential. And really that's as a collegiate coach. And I think a leader of people, you're really trying to help people, understand the the factors that enable them to um maximize their their potential and in this case you know we're on a team we want to maximize team potential but i think i, I really believe with every bit of my soul that the place to start is with the individual and giving them the framework to really understand okay these are the the, the kind of choices that support uh performance levels and these are the choices that probably don't support uh, uh performance levels and, and i think we're always we always tiptoe around that and, um, you know, we put up flyers on, on telephone poles in the back of bathroom stalls. And we think that, all right, if we tell people to sleep more, if we tell people, you know, not to, you know, eat bad food, then, you know, maybe that will stick. And, and, and we develop leadership committees and to talk about things, but we don't actually do anything like super tangible to really direct the individual and educate the individual on, on actually, no, these are the things that, that really do based on the science that we, we, uh, based on all the science that's out there, these are the things that actually do performance, uh, you know, influence your performance levels. And, and I think we, um, we don't talk about it enough. You know, I think we, we tap toe, we, we kind of tiptoe around it. And, and I think the one thing that I brought into my environment, I think that enabled us to win, you know, 12 Ivy League championships in 13 seasons, you know, huge amounts of continued success is that we had 
a performance education framework that really did focus on the individual first. So it was about giving the, the keys to the individual to really understand, okay, how do I need to manage my body? How do I need to manage my psychology in a way that allows me to, um, you know, apply my attention and my thoughts in a way that's truly rewarding to me? And it's it's so it goes back. I think when we think about this in the context context of a corp corporation, you know, what are the corporate values and how is it that in, in using those values as a platform to recruit, you know, and I, and I think when I think about Princeton, you know, we were very, very clear about what are the things that we tracked, you know, what were we trying to achieve as a team? Um, what was the framework that we had in place that was going to enable our student athletes to achieve, you know, their, their, you know, personal best, whatever that might look like, achieve their potential. We were very clear about what those expectations were, very clear about the values. And as a result, we attracted people who wanted to go down that path, you know, with us. Like they, they were buying into like that, that, all right, this is what I wanted. So as a result, you know, kids didn't quit my team. Like we didn't, you know, we, we, we had zero attrition essentially in my 13 years. And, and you think about this from a corporate standpoint, like we don't actually talk about values, I think, enough in the recruiting process. We don't actually talk about what are what what really goes on here. Um, so there's a match between what people expect and the actual reality. So I think we had just a very a lot of clarity around who are who are we, who do we want to be in the world as kind of a team? How do we actually help the individual understand who they want to be in the world and what are the frameworks that we need to put in place to actually make that happen? And you know, what are the things that we need to track as as individuals that are gonna enable us to have the you know energy and attentional capacity and the motivation to be able to actually you know direct our effort in a way that you know enables us to achieve uh you know our, our goals and so it's kind of a long-winded answer but you know that's that's really i think what enabled our success and, and kind of some of the frameworks that we had in place that i think allowed that to be possible one of the things that kind of sparked my curiosity while you were while you were talking about that is uh, one of the things that and, and you know this one of the things that leaders in in business love is a full team of top performers, right? And one of the things that takes away from mission outcomes is having to go through the the hiring process to to fill gaps mm -hmm. and things. But oh, as gosh. a coach, yeah, yeah, that's I mean, churn is just part of it. Um, yeah, and you have to recruit new talent every single year to replenish talent that you lost. Totally. What are some of the things beyond obviously the, the tangible aspects you were a field hockey coach. You're obviously looking for top athletes around the country or around the world that, that play this sport at a high level. I'm really curious to know as you're looking to create this culture, what are some of the intangible things that you were looking for from your athletes? Uh, yeah, I mean, definitely, intrinsic motivation, you know, is one like, you know, do they, um, are they self-directed, you know, do they, um, understand like, are they, do they actually like value and, and love the sport? Like I, you know, I think that at, at its core is really important. And, and I think you translate that to the a corporate environment. Do they actually love the work that they're doing? Um, mm -hmm. is, is this aligned with, because what happens when you think about over the course of the day, you know, you want your behaviors to be a reflection of the things that you say you really care about, you know, so understanding, you know, what are the things at my core that I want to be thinking about, you know, like I, for me personally, like, I, you know, I, I love to innovate, I like to solve new problems. And if I were in a job where I couldn't innovate and solve new problems, I would not be happy, you know, so it, it's like really understanding at your core, 
you know, what, how do I not, who do I want to be in this world? And, you know, what are the things that I really care about at my core and how do I want to be thinking? And, and I think if you can, if you can make sure that there's alignment there, then generally speaking, folks are going to, and, and you have a, you, you know, your, the, the job is set up in a way to kind of that allows that person to kind of live their values. Then all of a sudden, like you've got really happy employees. Um, you know, I think about my assistant coach, she was, she was with me for 13 seasons, could easily have moved on and have been a head coach somewhere else if she wanted to. But I just made sure that she was, you know, leveraging all of her skills. And, you know, she was thinking about the things that she wanted to, you know, be thinking about that she said she cared about. So there's a lot of alignment for her, uh, even though maybe, you know, she wasn't a head coach. She didn't really care about that because she was, you know, able to, you know, live her values, um, you know, really consistently. So I think that's at kind of the core um, of, I think, reducing churn is, you know, um, number one, reality and expectations, I think is really key. And then secondly, helping people literally just live their values. When I, we've, we've talked about this actually on the podcast a fair amount. It's one of the things that next generation employees are really looking for as well. The, the, the younger millennials, the generation Z and beyond, they're, they're looking for an organization that shares their values and they want to do meaningful work. And it's yeah. an opportunity at a time where government has struggled empirically to recruit and and retain more importantly some of the top talent out there when you're competing with private sector entities but when you can give them a mission that they care about yeah and you can create a culture that makes them feel valued that's how you can recruit these these top individuals and then retain them and i think exactly what you just said i mean sports is a is a great um great parallel to some of these things and i Again, like I mentioned, I love taking inspiration from unique areas, and I think this is an area that certainly government can take inspiration from as well. I, I think so. Yeah, I, you know, it, and I, and I, I, um, I think leaders need to develop uh, a comfort level, like having these type of discussions. You know, because I, I think to your point, I think this is a generation who really is seeking that alignment and is kind of aware of, of, you know, this concept of dissonance, you know, of cognitive dissonance when, you know, values and behaviors aren't aligning and to kind of help guide that conversation and just be aware of it um, is important. Cause I think what happens when you have this dissonance is that's really what leads to burnout um, is, is when, you know, you're not living your values and you feel like the, you know, cost of what you're doing doesn't equal the reward anymore. You know, all of these things are, are, you know, kind of contribute to a feeling of, of, you know, just a lack of purpose really. And, and, uh, and I think that's where people, you know, even though they might not be overworked, you know, they're just, they don't have the enthusiasm for the work that, um, maybe they would, they would want to, and, and that kind of manifests as burnout. But I think just understanding some of these really core, simple psychological principles can be super helpful for leaders. Um, and then I think on the other side, understanding the core physiological purposes, right? Like it's really hard to, you know, grasp on to purpose and meaning when you're underslept or overfueled or underfueled or dehydrated mm -hmm. or, you know, it's, it's, I think too, like, you know, not being shy as a, as a company to be like, Hey, these are, these are physiological, you know, these are behaviors that are going to impact impact your productivity and, and most importantly, like just your overall well-being and happiness as a, as a human being and just being 
you know, outlining what those are. And, and I think giving folks the opportunity to track it. And, and honestly, like this is where we made, uh, you know, I, I think it was the most happy I was as a coach when I started actually tracking uh, some of these variables, um, you know, related to kind of sleep and recovery. Um, you know, we were tracking hydration levels and other things that really influenced their ability to kind of show up uh, to training and to matches with capacity and to show up to class and to social engagements and to the relationships with, with capacity. Um, you know, once we started monitoring and tracking that, it gave us just a platform to have a way clearer conversation about, you know, what was going well and what wasn't going well. And it was not me, you know, saying, uh, having a, a, you know, a, a personal attack on the individual is more of just, Hey, this is what the data says. Like this is, these are things that might be getting in the way of your ability to do all the things that you, you say you want to do. So how do we, how do we go about addressing that? Um, so I, I think, you know, and, and that's, you know, a collegiate environment, obviously very different. The type of conversations we can have are a little different than, than what is in a, in a corporate environment. But I think taking a version of that model um, and, and figuring out how to, you know, how to, how to, how to take some of those concepts and, and bring them into, you know, the corporate environment, I, I think is, 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 is really the path, honestly, if we want to, you know, solve things like, you know, turno turnover and burnout and, and, mm -hmm. and whatnot. Well, and it, I, I want to go in that direction now. I think it's a great time um, to frankly be working in any industry because I think every single field is getting, more data oriented. They're looking yeah. at the the value that data can bring to them. Um, it's one, again, it's it's that sweet spot that you guys sit in too. It's not only the creation of data, but how do you actionize what, right and and yeah. really make those decisions moving forward. Um, so, it, have you found that to be the case? And you obviously you work across multiple different industries. I know we yeah. were talking. You work with the government. You work with the military. Um, you're you're driving performance everywhere. Have you found this data orientation to really be the case everywhere you're going? Without a doubt. I mean, just to be able to look at, you know, aggregate level, you know, de-identified data across a large cohort, you know, you start to see themes emerge, you know, you start to see which behaviors are most predictive of subjective measures of resilience, for example. Um, you know, we see very clearly in our data that, you know, individuals who have more stable sleep wake time are, you know, how, so that's basically, it's called sleep consistency or sleep regularity in the, in the literature, the way we track it on, on the Whoop platform is sleep consistency. But we see very strong relationship between, almost causal, between sleep consistency and um, and, and, and measures of uh, subjective well-being and, and, you know, measures of resilience. So, um, you know, we saw this very clearly in um, a study we did with um, a military outfit um, out in Alaska. Uh, so, you know, I, I think to be able to have some of these insights surface, I mean, another one we did, um, research we did with a, a large consulting firm, um, very well-known consulting firm, we, we looked at 100 of their, of their CEOs, and we saw a, uh, uh, basically individuals who had, so uh, sleep debt is, is one of the metrics that we track, and it's basically... Um, Whoop gives you a sleep need recommendation based on a bunch of factors that transpire throughout the day. So how hard your heart worked that day, um, any sleep debt um, that you accumulated from the previous night, um, any, you know, if you took a nap that day, 
Um, you, you know, that reduces your sleep need uh, in theory a bit. So we have this very, you know, sophisticated algorithm that basically tells you how much time you need to spend in bed in order to optimally restore um, and regenerate for the next day. And, you know, this is not a random number generator. And, and this is the study that kind of proved that is basically the sleep debt is what Whoop says you need versus what you got is that's your sleep need debt metric. And we saw that sleep debt in the CEOs. So if they accumulated 45 minutes of sleep debt, net, we saw a 10% decrease in next day executive functioning and working memory measured by Stroop and NBAC. So two objective tests that uh, are used to, to measure, are validated tests that measure executive function and working memory. So you think about this at a, you know, an agency level, military, you know, whatever the cohort you're thinking about, you know, the, the, the Cardinal, St. Louis Cardinals, like, doesn't matter, right? Like you, you want to have good next day executive functioning working memory for a whole host of reasons. And you can imagine if you are walking around with 45 minutes of sleep debt, you're basically operating at at least a, you know, 10%, um, you know, kind of deficit in, in those two areas. And gosh, if you've got two hours of sleep debt, you know, now that that number is going to uh, increase, right? So you're looking at maybe a, you know, 10 to 20% decrease in next day executive function and working memory. So, so these data at an individual level, obviously, are so powerful, right? Once you start to understand these relationships, right? If I can adopt a more consistent sleep-wake time, I'm going to be just literally a physiologically and psychologically more resilient human, right? So we see, again, not just sleep consistency, you know, showing up in the mental resilience, but we also see it in cardiovascular resilience as well. So sleep consistency drives, not to get into the science too much, but it drives sleep efficiency, which is the time, you know, the more stable you have, you know, sleep-wake timing, the more efficient you will be at sleeping generally, um, less fragmentation, more time in deeper stages of sleep. So, it, you know, th these data just really start to help you apply your effort in a way that is going to help you, you know, be a more resilient human, really, both physiologically and psychologically. And, and, and so these are some of the ways that data can be used at an aggregate level to just direct, to help to educate, right? So we know, you know, with our, our um, you know, military outfit in Alaska, we are educating around sleep consistency. We know that there is a direct relationship between sleep consistency and, um, and, and, and subjective feelings of resilience. We also saw it correlate to less homesick. Um, they, these individuals feel more in control of their life. So there, there's, you know, this in incredible opportunity to look at these um, data at an aggregate level and, and really then understand how to educate your, your workforce. I, I'm very visual. And as you're talking, I'm thinking uh, it's almost like a gas tank or even a, uh, when you played video games as a kid, it, yes. you see like, you battery, see like yeah. life, yeah, your life yeah, out your there life and going, going down. down. Yeah. yeah. Is that, is that kind of the way you want people to start thinking about it from a, from a performance perspective saying, Hey, to get here, I need you to do this, this, and this, and you can raise that. It's, it's almost of a gamification of your capacity, right? Yeah. And I, you know, I, I'm always, I, I'm kind of a victim of, I over-index on like this kind of hyper-optimized uh, persona. You know, that's kind of the criticism that I get um, from my, my Whoop colleagues, but, um, <laughs> but, but yeah, I mean, gosh, like there, if, if, if your goal is to live, you know, your values with, you know, as much happiness and vigor as possible, then a thousand percent like there are things that are gonna help you you know 
you know, are going to lead you to that path. And there are behaviors that are, are not going to be helpful. Right. And, and I think there really is, and I think people are afraid of this and this is why we introduce so much nuance and just, you know, are all hand wavy, but I think there, there really, I think there's this principle of non-neutrality where, you know, there are no neutral actions actually. Like, I think that we can say this pretty clearly as it relates to kind of these factors that we know unequivocally are going to support longevity and health and then activities that are not going to support longevity and health. So I, I think it's, I think there is a way, yeah, like we, you know, if we're, the more we choose behaviors that support longevity and health, the more capacity we have. And we can think about that gas tank or that battery as your capacity, right? And every day, you know, if you don't go, if, you, if you're not getting the requisite sleep that you need, for example, like you will literally just adapt to a lower level of functioning. And that's also where I think these data at an aggregate level can be really helpful is that we don't always perceive our own cognitive and physical declines. Like we know this from the literature. So there's a, also another huge opportunity to kind of help people understand, hey, this is, we see this, you know, decline in productivity, you know, um, and we also see, we see it correlate to a decline in how much time folks are spending in bed. I, you know, this is like obvious stuff, like, you know, but, but I think if we are actually accountable to our, our, our work and, and not to mention, we can't, we be accountable to our family, right? And it's really hard when you're walking around with a ton of sleep debt to, to be, I, I think, you know, you're going to be more irritable, you're going to be more moody, you're not going to make as, as good as decisions, you know, maybe financially or just inside your relationship. Like, I, you know, there's a, a pretty strong downstream effect when we think about sleep specifically, but also, you know, managing strain and recovery and some of these other things that we're tracking. There's a huge opportunity, right, to keep that gas tank, you know, to keep kind of filling it up, you know, day after day. You, you blew my mind with something you just said. And it's, as, as I've been thinking about it now, it feels very intuitive, but I never thought of it this way. You adapt, when you, when you get less sleep, you actually adapt to a lower level function. Yeah. Not that without you knowing adapt. <laughs> yeah. Without, without the, I guess I always thought of it as you can adapt to potentially less sleep, but in essence, you're what you're really doing is you're adapting to a lower standard, which exactly. I, I had never thought about it that way. That's, I mean, that's a great way to think about it because ultimately what you could do is say, if you do fill up your capacity, imagine the level of functioning you can hit. Exactly. And this is my entire thesis, thesis, Brian. And this is like really what I've been trying to, to help, you know, my, for my own life, my, you know, my own kind of standards of how I want to be in this world. Um, but also, you know, when I was at, when I was coaching, I think that, um, you know, if I want to show up and, and be as engaged and present as I possibly can be, like there are just, there's just kind of a certain, certain checklist, like just a foundational level of things that I need to be doing across the day that are going to either support that, um, or, or, or not, you know, and, and, and I think that, um, you know, the, the less, the less of those boxes I'm checking across the day, there is that chance that I just end up kind of adapting to this lower standard. And, and that's where metrics like heart rate variability, for example, are so incredible, right? Cause they tell us basically our adaptive capacity, that it's a measure of how functionally I can adapt to external, the stresses of the environment. Um, and, you know, that's relationship stress, that's, you know, um, you know, all, uh, the myriad of, of stresses. Um, 
that that come across over the course of the day, you know, the the higher variability I have between the beats of my heart, which is what heart rate variability is, the more adaptive I'm going to be to my environment. So again, we see these behaviors that I'm talking about, like sleep consistency, for example, and minimizing sleep debt. Um, you know, they correlate to heart rate variability, um, which you know, again, is is just a, is a is a objective metric that tells me how I'm adapting to external stress over, you know, on an individual day, time, but more importantly, like longitudinally over time. And as you get older, heart variability declines. But, um, you know, my own data over the last six years, my base heart rate variability is higher than it was six years ago. Because I, you know, I'm just at, or at the time, I'm like actually learning from all these data that I've exposed to, like, what are the behaviors that are helping? What are the behaviors that hurt? So, you know, I, I how, who knows how many more years I've tacked on in my life, but, you know, I've never felt more energy and, you know, more purpose in my life than, than I have now is because I'm, I'm just really, I'm taking care of the physiology. Um, I know that's going to have an impact on my psychological status and my mindset and my ability to access my leadership capacity and all the things that I want to do in my life. Um, you know, and so, yeah, heart variability is an unbelievable proxy to, that helps us understand how we're, how we're trending and whether or not we're adapting functionally or, or, um, or adapting to a lower level. I'm always intrigued by surprises because I know I have my own assumptions around things. Sometimes you mentioned you index index towards a certain persona. Um, cause we're generally in, in swim lanes, seeing life through our own lens yeah. and, and then it, it becomes difficult to imagine other things, or you have these assumptions mm -hmm. that, that shock you. So as you've done some of these experiments or you've been working with companies, were there either reactions or maybe initial data sets that really shocked you or any type of predictions that you made just that, that went horribly wrong? Mm, that's such a good question. Yeah. I mean, you know, oftentimes when we look at, you know, the aggregate level data, there's things that we expect to correlate. Don't, um, you know, one of the things that, you know, this is just maybe a sillyish kind of example, but, uh, you know, melatonin, for example, uh, is purported to really help with sleep onset latency. Um, and, and, and there isn't actually a lot of research. So the supplement melatonin, um, which so melatonin is kind of that sleepy chemical that we produce naturally, um, but folks take melatonin uh, really freely. It's, you know, basically from an FDA perspective, it's considered like a food, like super benign. But what we see in our, in our aggregate level kind of member data, we see that actually has a, a quite a deleterious effect on sleep efficiency. So while it might help you fall asleep faster, it actually decreases your sleep efficiency by up to 15%, which is massive, right? So if you're thinking about, okay, optimal sleep efficiency, let's just say is of the time that you're spending in bed, 50% of that time, um, you want to be in these deeper stages of sleep. So now you're looking at, you know, knocking that down by like 15%. So now you're at 35% sleep efficiency just by taking like this little molecule, like this little supplement of melatonin. Um, so those, those are the kind of like things that I, I think have, have bubbled up over time and have been really interesting and totally like, holy cow, like science says that melatonin is totally benign. And I'm like, wait, it's not benign based on the, our data, you know? Um, I think the other things uh, that have been really interesting is that like we can actually like hack physiology by, you know, pulling certain levers related to uh, timing of food, light behavior, um, sleep-wake timing, 
and exercise timing. And these are things that we kind of have seen in the literature as being important, but never kind of packaged in a way that, wow, if we actually hack these things, we can bypass or opt out of like things like jet lag, for example. Um, so lots of like kind of fun moments like that where we're like, holy cow, like we just discovered something, you know? You can, um, you can opt really out useful. of jet lag? That's amazing. Yes. <laughs> I know, I know, right? Um, but yeah, we, we did this, we were working with um, a collegiate team and, um, you know, we were, they were traveling to the West Coast for, it's just a couple years ago, um, uh, traveling to the West Coast for a, um, uh, a kind of national championship, uh, you know, a final four. And I said, I was like, all right, like the, this looks like there's just a lot of evidence in the literature that we, we could actually operationalize this research and, and really apply it. And, and if we do these four things and we keep these four things on your East Coast time as you travel to the West Coast, if you maintain your sleep-wake time from the East Coast, if you maintain your, your eating schedule and your light schedule, so when you're viewing light and when you're not, if we keep those three things consistent, we can actually not have any experience, any jet lag. And sure enough, no physiological changes. And they went on and did really well. We replicated it again this year, and this team won the national championship. Um, so just kind of a really cool uh, little case study, but but to kind of see, to, to be able to have the data to experiment and be able to, to track, you know, whether or not, you know, these kind of interventions are actually working is, is pretty, pretty amazing. What have been some of the most challenging things that have come up when you've looked to actionize the data. I mean, my, my first thought tends to be the human element, right? Because it, it's yeah. usually the most challenging piece of anything you're trying to do, um, no matter what industry you're in. But what other yeah. challenging components have you found when trying to actionize this? Um, I think probably just getting, I mean, buying in, you know, like I, I change, behavior yeah. change is the hardest thing you know it, it it goes through you know when you think about like a path to change like it's awareness and assessment and acknowledgement and acceptance and action and adoption like you know it's like these seven steps right like that are, are that people have to go through you know to actually really a, adopt change and and i think um a lot of times it, it, you know i guess for me the hard thing is like I'm just like, doesn't everyone want to like just show up and, and be their best version every day? And, and some people um, have a lot of, you know, barriers that they maybe haven't worked through, right? That kind of open up that the pathway to like actually see life through that lens, you know? And so I, that's like kind of my own personal challenge, I think, is, um, you know, kind of... Uh, you know, wanting people to kind of be excited about taking control of their health and having agency over their health and knowing that there's kind of, I kind of know that there's a, this really cool path to that, but getting people to kind of adopt, um, adopt that mindset obviously is, is a challenge. But I think if we, I, I think just getting folks to just start thinking about sleep is, is the, the best way to change health at scale um, or transform health at scale is, is getting people to figure out, okay, how can I just baby step my way into kind of a healthier, um, you know, more present existence. And, and that really does start with, with sleep behavior. So um, 
yeah, so I think it's getting folks to just buy into this idea that, you know, sleeping when you're dead is kind of a, a probably not a great mindset um, and that you're, you're probably leaving a ton on the table that you're not even aware of. And uh, so it's, I think it's just getting folks to, to, to build actually policies and frameworks around that inside their organization to, to make that happen. You know, for example, like you don't want to tell a night owl who's literally biological preference, they're going to feel sleepy later. As a result, they are going to need to wake up a little later than your morning lark, for example. So, I mean, how many organizations are actually taking chronotype into consideration? Not many, right? But, and we know that night owls die sooner than morning larks, right? Because society isn't set up for them. So there's just things like that, you know, that really like, you know, if anything keeps me up at night, it's that, you know, it's like, you know, we're not really set up as a society to really like, or we're not flexible enough to kind of consider all these various biological preferences that really do impact productivity and overall health and, and longevity. Well, it feels like those type of kind of pieces about us are one great opportunities for companies that that want to really differentiate themselves yeah. to to people that are that really want to be in control of their lives. I mean, work life balance. I mean, I can't think of one of a of a bigger thing than the amount of sleep that you get, especially around work life yeah. balance. But I yeah, also exactly. think you you couple that with the period of time that we're in right now, and there's there's so much fluidity within yes. the world we're living in and work from home it's a great example and this that's that could be a perfect alternative where if you have somebody that is a night owl allow them to get their work done on their own time in those periods of time now obviously there's there's some um there's some pieces of that that don't always work right there there's meetings and other things but i think for the most part you can balance schedules and then really differentiate yourself to the faction of people you're trying to recruit yeah, there's no question. We've actually seen that in our member data. You know, we've seen, you know, people's people shift. You know, their their wake times are a little bit later um, than what they have been previously. Um, so yeah, I think the work from home, you know, especially our kind of pandemic data, a quarantine data. Um, so yeah, I, I think that there's a huge opportunity there to really, um, you know, leverage this kind of work from home and, and help people be more aligned with their their kind of innate biological preference and. Um, you know, as a, as a way to actually improve productivity and just overall health and, and well-being. But yeah, it's so interesting, this whole experiment of, of, of work from home. And it's, uh, for me personally, it's been amazing. But <laughs> <laughs> So I, as we start to wrap up, I, I am curious to know, when you're talking to leaders and you have some, some folks listening now, what are some of your recommendations to them when they're looking to implement uh, a, a culture leveraging data you've obviously you've done it for yourself you've done it for um collegiate teams when you were coaching you've also worked with corporations and and uh military organizations etc so what would your advice be to leaders looking to do this themselves i think giving you know the the pitch to folks in that hey we want to support you know your own journey um you know we want to help you have more agency over your, your health and your well-being. Um, you know, he, you know, here's a, an, you know, a tool that's been known to, to do that and, you know, share some of the case studies. You know, we have a whole enterprise team that kind of sells into, um, you know, corporations and military and athletic departments. And so we kind of have a nice, this incredible enterprise solution that basically kind of comes prepackaged for 
a leader to say, hey, this is a, a program that works. And we've got a lot of really nice case studies across, um, you know, corporations and and military and athletic departments where we, we've seen, you know, WHOOP rolled out in ways that, um, you know, allow the individual just to opt in. And, you know, none of the data is shared. So there's lots of different privacy options. Um, you know, if there's enough folks on the platform, we can do kind of de-identified aggregated data in a way that doesn't identify, you know, individuals in any, any way, shape or form. So there's obviously lots of different ways we can, you, you know, do the statistics to make sure that everyone's protected. But I think that aggregate level data can really help shape some of the policies and frameworks that we're talking about, right, um, around productivity and, um, and just overall health and wellness. Um, but I think, I think that the concept is, hey, we want we're, we're investing in you as an individual. And, and I think that's really what um, the conversation can be for leaders is that, you know, we want to give you access to tools that help you, you know, be your, your best self, um, you know, not just obviously when you're working, but in, in your non-working hours and in your downtime as well. If I've taken anything away from this conversation, it's that I need to probably be more intentional about the amount of sleep that I get and, and the type of sleep that I get, I think that seems to be a pattern across yeah. uh, across wellness as a whole. But um, as we wrap up, any final thoughts you want to leave with the listeners today? Yeah, I mean, just to that last point, like I think a lot of folks maybe are spending enough time in bed, but to your point, are maybe not getting the quality of sleep, um, you know, because there's very important things that are happening in deeper stages of sleep. And if you're not getting into those deeper stages of sleep, um, you know, the brain isn't clearing out toxins, for example, and, you know, you're not able to build muscle and, you know, not to terrify people, but, you know, there are certain things happening during these deeper stages of sleep that are, are really critical for just our overall kind of health and, and, and wellness. And, you know, it's a pretty strong tie, you know, to, I mean, really, I think we can say this, um, at this point, root cause to all mortality is actually insufficient, low quality sleep. So, you know, when you look at the root cause of, of death, um, insufficient sleep is, is kind of um, at the foundation there, uh, just because insufficient sleep, sleep is linked with cancer and disease and, you know, obviously compromised immunity, cardiovascular disease. So yes, there's just this very strong link. So if I were to leave folks with anything is, is yes, uh, be intentional about sleep. There's no reason to get anxious, but it is worth all of your time and effort to figure out how to make it as good as possible. Because I mean, if there's anything that I've seen in my six years at Whoop and my time at Princeton, a place where people don't sleep a whole lot, <laughs> um, I, I've seen sleep transform lives, absolutely transform lives. You know, people just starting to spend literally just 51 more minutes of bed changes their life, right? Like I, I, I just have, there's just a, a gazillion stories uh, over the course of, of the of the six years across every industry, you know, from corporate to, to military to healthcare, um, you know, helping night shift workers manage their schedules more, you know, in a way that allows them to pull these levers so they can mitigate the effects of, of just a desynchronized sleep, you know, sleep wake schedule. Um, I, you know, just that it goes on and on in, in terms of how transformative sleep can be. And, and I think without kind of monitoring and, and just getting an inside look at actually what's happening with your sleep, we just don't know, right? And it kind of goes back to that original point, Brian, about adaptive capacity, right? Are, are we adapting to just a lower level of functioning or are we actually adapting functionally? You know, and I think that's the opportunity. Here. I, that, that might be my favorite quote now. <laughs> oh, okay. Uh, I've, been, I've been throwing that around for, for a couple decades now. So I'm glad someone's, someone's latched onto it. <laughs> Kristen, I really appreciate the time today. Thanks so much for joining us. 
Oh, thanks for having me, Brian. I really, I really appreciate it. It's been uh, lovely to talk to you. This has been the Government Huddle Podcast. You can check out more episodes of the show by heading over to govexec.com backslash podcast or wherever you access your podcasts. And feel free to connect with me on LinkedIn or on Twitter at Chittister AB. Thanks for listening, guys. Bye for now.